Hello and welcome to Living Hope. This is Pastor Staten, and I want to welcome everybody that is joining us today. A shout out to our E family, all of you that are joining us through the internet. I want to remind you every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you can join us live at tv.livinghopemd.com. I pray that today's message blesses you and that you enjoy the word as it is shared today. I'm so lost to be found, and I know it's in my mind. Good morning. <laughs> Everyone seems so happy and cheerful and glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning, even though it's dreary outside, but the temperature is wonderful. It's fall time. I was telling my sister yesterday, Christmas time's a coming. Woohoo! <laughs> All right. So um, we're going to go ahead and get started and... Um, if you all could stand, we're going to turn to John chapter 12. I've got my water down here because I've been really thirsty this morning, and I got my tissues so I don't have like the fiasco that I had a couple times ago, and I got my sweat towel if I need it, so <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, before I get started, I just want to say thank you to Pastor and Sister Staten for the opportunity to teach this morning. I want to give honor to Bishop and Sister Staten. Love you both. I'm so glad you all are here today. And I would also like to give honor to Brother and Sister Roberts. And I was, I told, before I got here this morning, I was like, Jessica, you're going to have to hold it together today. <laughs> he came and talked to me a little bit before, um, before prayers this morning, and I was like, Okay, hold it together, Jessica. Hold it together, Jessica. But I'm so thankful for the Roberts and the impact that they've had on my life. They have taught me so much. I've learned so much from Brother Roberts in teaching techniques, and he's one of my absolute favorite teachers. He should be teaching in Bible colleges all over the world because he's incredible. Yeah, he deserves that. He deserves that. He is a student of the Word of God, and he has taught me to be a student of the Word of God. He is in his teaching Sunday after Sunday, Wednesdays, and his preaching. He has planted in me a love for the Word of God, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm going to miss them so much, as I know we all will. But anyways, they've been like parents to me. I've been here, and they've taken care of me, and <laughs> when I've had issues with my car, I'd call Brother Roberts, and like, Brother Roberts, my car is dead in the middle of the road, and he would come no matter where and push it out of the highway and fix it for me. Um, I'm just so grateful for them, but we're going to go ahead and move forward in the Word of God. Amen. So our scripture text this morning, John 12, verse 24 through 26, and we're going to kind of mix it up a little bit. I've got it. It's on the screen because we're going to read from the Amplified Version. And what I want to do to get everybody involved is I'm going to have this section read verse 24, the middle section read verse 25, and this section read verse 26. Okay? Everybody got that? So 24, 25, 26. All right, so let's all read it together. Well, this section. All right. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Just one grain, never more. But if it dies, it produces much grain and yields a harvest. All right. Verse 25. The one who loves his life eventually loses it through death. 
but the one who hates his life in this world and is concerned with pleasing God will keep it for life eternal. All right, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must continue to faithfully follow me without hesitation, holding steadfastly to me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering, or perhaps dying because of faith in me. And wherever I am in heaven's glory, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amen. If we could just lift a hand this morning and pray that the Lord would speak to us today. God, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy, God. Thank you for bringing us here today, God. You've kept us from danger seen and unseen, God. Lord, I ask you to move in this place today. God, let our hearts and our minds be opened to your word, God, to what you desire to speak to us. God, anoint the ears to hear, God, and anoint my lips, God, to speak your words, God, not my thoughts, not my ideas, but God, what you desire to say today. God, and we give you glory. We give you honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. I'm sorry for those who had to read verse 26. It was quite a bit lengthier than the others, but y'all did great. Give yourselves a hand. You guys did wonderful. You passed. You passed. You passed this class. <laughs> so, all right. So I'm going to lay a little bit of foundation for this lesson today. It is a bit different than my normal method of teaching in that if you've heard me teach before, you know I'm usually pretty point driven. I have point one, point two. Um, I don't really have specific points this morning, so it's going to be a little bit different, um, but just bear with me and hopefully, you know, it'll minister to you in some way. So in March of 2019, I was able to go um, to Washington State and um, spend some time with the Coots. I went for Destiny's birthday and was able to visit them. While we were there, we went to Seattle. Has anybody been to Seattle? All right. Washington State is beautiful. It is one of my favorite states. It's absolutely gorgeous. So we went to Seattle and we did a few of the touristy things. We went to the marketplace, you know, where they, they throw the fish back and forth. And we went to the Space Needle, you know, where it's super high and they've got their glass bottom floor and all of that. And um, we got seafood and rode the ferry. Uh, but the most interesting thing that we did was we did a guided underground tour. Um, Yes, underground. I don't know if many of you know, but there is actually a portion of Seattle that the old city is underneath, is underground. And so they have that tour. Um, it's not used because of safety issues, of course, um, but they do have, pre they have preserved part of it to where you can do a, um, like a tour and just kind of learn a little bit more about the history of the city. So I was fascinated. I thought it was amazing to find out how the city of Seattle became what it was um, and why there was an underground city. Like, why, why, what was the purpose of that? Well, Seattle was first incorporated as a city in 1869. Uh, like most cities of that time period, all of the buildings were made of wood. That's not uncommon. Um, but on June 6, 1889, about 20 years after it became a city, a cabinet maker, Jonathan Edward Back, accidentally overturned and ignited a glue pot 
And in an attempt to extinguish this fire with water, he spread this burning grease-based blue and the great Seattle fire destroyed 31 blocks of the city um, because one man tipped over some glue. Um, so while this kind of a fire, of the city, it's not that uncommon for that time period because, again, all the buildings were made of wood, and so you know, a little fire can start quickly. Um, but instead of rebuilding the city as it was before, the city leaders decided they made two strategic decisions. First, that all of the new buildings must be of stone or brick. It was insurance against future fires, things like that. Like if was, a building is built of stone or brick, it's not going to burn as easily. The second thing was that the streets would be regraded one to two stories higher than the original street grade. So Pioneer Square, what's known as Pioneer Square now, had originally been built mostly on filled-in tidelands, living close to the water. I think we can kind of understand that, you know, being built on sand and things like that. So it often flooded. It flooded all of the time. So this new street level would assist ensuring that, <laughs> this is really interesting, but it assisted in ensuring that gravity-assisted flush toilets that funneled into the Elliott Bay did not back up at high tide. Do you imagine living <laughs> in Pioneer Square that flooded all the time and then the sewage system backed up all the time with high tide? That would not be pleasant. So the city leaders, they realized this. So, but, so that's why they were going to regrade the city. But business owners, they didn't want to wait. They didn't want to wait for the regrading because that was a process. They had to bring in dirt from other places and pat it, you know, get it down to where they could build on it. But so they began building their businesses right away, uh, trying to build up land where there were already structures in place, as you can imagine, posed its own set of issues. So for the regrade, the streets were lined with concrete walls that formed narrow alleyways between the walls and the buildings on both sides of the street with a wide alley where the street was. So if you can picture a building, the sidewalk, a concrete wall, and then nothing, a concrete wall, a sidewalk, and a building because they had to bring dirt in to regrade that road. So they put those concrete walls. Is that? Can you picture it in your mind? So the streets were raised then to the desired new level, generally 12 feet higher than before, in some places nearly 30 feet. That's, real, that's a lot. 12 feet even is a lot to regrade that. So at first, the pedestrians, you know, walking in the city and going to get their groceries or going to get their glue or whatever they needed, they would have to climb up and down ladders to go between the street level and the sidewalks in front of the building entrances. There were brick archways constructed next to the road surface above the submerged sidewalk. So you, there were, and when you do the underground tour, you actually walk through those archways. And on the top of those, they were called pavement lights. And it was a form of a walk-on skylight that you would walk on. And it's like glass um, pieces of amethyst that they put on in those brick walkways that you could walk on. But it also gave light to the underground sidewalks and things like that. So um, this created the area now called the Seattle Underground. So the, the reconstruction building's ground floor would eventually be underground, and then the next floor up would be the new ground floor. So these business owners, they had to 
think ahead and like, okay, we, we can't build our, our buildings one story. We've got to build them two and three stories if they're going to be functional for future business. So while the foresight, the vision, the determination, the ingenuity of the men and women of the late 1800s, it's truly amazing. If you look at structures and things that were built in the 1800s, the early 1900s, it's amazing because they didn't have the equipment and the technology and the things that we do now. It was brain power and muscle power and just incredible ingenuity. And it's amazing. But the thing that stuck out to me the most out of all of that was at the end of our tour, the guide told us that there was not one person killed in the fire that destroyed this city. 31 blocks burnt to the ground and not one person was killed. However, it was in the reconstruction, the rebuilding of this city, that there are reported 17 deaths. So this morning, I'm going to speak to you about the thought, death and the rebuilding. Death and the rebuilding. Seattle, this great city that we now know, before the fire, was on its way to destruction. It was too close to sea level. It had poor water and sewage systems, and it was overrun by rodents. It's reported that over one million rodents were killed in the fire. One million rodents in 31 blocks. That's a serious problem. <laughs> that, that's a serious problem. Put aside the sewage backing up and all of that. A million rodents, I, I wouldn't live there. I'd be like, you know, peace out, Seattle. <laughs> Best of luck to you. I'm out of here. <laughs> but in order for this city to truly become what it could be and what we now know it is, a major port for industry and growth. It's one of the largest ports in the world. Like, it's huge. There had to be something drastic take place. The old had to be destroyed, and it had to be rebuilt. I want to encourage you this morning that you and I, we have been created by God for a purpose. Each one of you have a purpose. There's not one person in here that when you were born that you were an uh-oh or an oops. Maybe, maybe to your parents, you know, I don't know, but not to God. God knew you. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah that before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. I approved you as my chosen instrument. This is from the Amplified Version. Before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I consecrated you to myself as my own. And I ordained, I have appointed you a prophet unto the nations. You were created for something great. God has consecrated us to himself as his we belong to him. He, so consecrated means to make or declare something sacred, dedicated formerly to a divine purpose. You have been declared. You have been defined. You have been set apart for a divine purpose. His plan and purpose for us is to have dominion and authority over the darkness of this world. That's, he created us with that. In the beginning of time, he gave, us, he gave man power and authority over the earth, over the world. As children of God, we have the Holy Ghost, and we have been ordained. We have been appointed to teach and proclaim the will of God, to come against darkness. That is our purpose. 
It's going to cost us some things, though, to be the person, to be the church that God created us to be. It's going to cost us some things. As devastating as the fire was to the city of Seattle, it gave the leaders of the city an opportunity to look at some things that could be adjusted and approved upon. It was a devastation. Like, people lost probably their homes, their businesses. But it was an opportunity for growth. It was an opportunity for things to be better. When we first came to God, I'm sure we can each remember that feeling of relief as our sins were washed away, forgiven, you know, they were washed away in baptism. You know, we can remember that feeling of just cleanness, of, of light, of just like, oh, this is wonderful. Those weights are no longer on me. There was a dying out to our old self that took place. It was liberating. No longer could our mistakes be held over our heads, but we were given a fresh start. The Bible says that even the heavens rejoice when one sinner repents. Amen. It was a glorious thing. It was a beautiful experience. And I'm sure if we think about it in our minds, each one of us can go back to that moment in our lives. But that was the easy part. Then came the hard part, the part where the change started costing us something, the pruning process, the cutting away Jude 20 says, but you, beloved, build yourselves up on the foundation of your most holy faith. Continually progress. Rise like an edifice higher and higher. To build means to construct something by putting parts or material together over a period of time. Just like those roads that they were regrading in Seattle didn't happen overnight. The building in our own lives, the higher and higher that God is calling us to, doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. 2 Peter 1 verse 5 says, Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Add moral excellence. That's what virtual virtue means, moral excellence. And to virtue, add knowledge. We're to add some insight. We're to add some understanding. Verse 6, to knowledge, temperance, a word that we really don't like, self-control. That's not always fun. It's hard to be controlled. You know, it's hard to bring ourselves under self-control. But to temperance, to self-control, add patience. Add some steadfastness. Steadfastness means to be firm and unwavering. And to that, patience, then add godliness. Verse 7, add to, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, affection. To brotherly kindness, charity. Charity is to be unselfishly seek the best for others and do things for their benefit. Not for yourself, but for their benefit. John 13, 35 tells us that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Anybody know by what that is? By your love for one another. By that charity, by that brotherly kindness. Verse 8 of 2 Peter 1 says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. I was reading that last night and I was thought, you know what? Like, I obviously I know that we need to add to us those things. We need to grow and but that's portion of scripture where it says, but, you, but if you lack these things, you've forgotten that you were purged from your old ways. 
if we don't continually add to us, we are in danger of forgetting what God has brought us from. It's because we become in that stagnant place where it's just like we just forget the goodness of God. I don't want to forget the goodness of God. I never want to forget where God brought me from. And I know there are so many testimonies in this room right now that don't forget where God brought you from. Don't go back there. But don't forget, because it's going to propel you further, because you know what? Next year, you're going to be able to look back to where you are right now and say, you know what, God? You brought me from even more. But we've got to grow. We've got to continually grow every day. Verse 10 says, wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Give diligence, careful, persistent work and effort. Work costs us something, right? When we get up tomorrow morning, the alarm goes off. We, it costs us a little bit of sleep maybe. You know, it costs us some gas money if we're not working from home. Work costs us our time. You know, it's not always fun. It's work, right? It's tedious. Sometimes it's painful. It's not always what we want to do, right? I mean, does every, every, I mean, do we all wake up Monday morning and be like, yes, I get to go to work today, you know, not, not some might, I love, I love my job. I love working for the church. So, you know, but there are still some days where I'm like, oh, I really wish I could just sleep for 20 more minutes. You know, it's, it's work. It costs us something. A lot of times we have to work alone, right? We've got to do it alone. Where are the angels now? You know, they, they were rejoicing. They were dancing around the throne when we repented, but I sure don't hear them right now. <laughs> You know, the Lord is testing my patience, but I don't hear no angels singing right now. I am all alone in this. Our text, John 12, 24, it says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It's one grain, never more. But if it dies, it produces much grain and yields a harvest. Did you know that if you're living for God and you're all here, so I'm assuming that you are, you're in the dying process. Those first few verses in 2 Peter that we read was about us dying. Dying to what we used to believe. Dying to our immorality. Dying to the way we used to understand things. Dying to our lack of self-control. Dying to our unfaithfulness. And it's only after our flesh is brought under control that we can pursue godliness. It's no mistake that godliness didn't come first because we can't be like God and be like ourselves. God is love, so it makes perfect sense that brotherly kindness and charity would follow. Again, we can't be like God if we're still trying to be like us. We can't love like God unless we become like God. So there's that process. We've got to be godliness, then brotherly kindness, then charity. It's a process. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't even happen in one year or 10 years. We are continually being made more like him. It's a process of things dying and things being added to us. So I want to take a look at the Bible. Imagine that. It's Sunday school. <laughs> so we're going to look at some examples of times in people's lives where they experienced death in the rebuilding. They had given their lives to God. They received the promise of something miraculous only to be felt left down. Have you ever felt that? You've been ever felt let down? So we're going to look at Eve in Genesis chapter 3. 
the Lord had given her the promise after part of the curse was actually a promise that her seed would bruise the head of the serpent who had deceived her into committing the first sin that cursed all of humanity. But what happened? Abel died. Her son died. The Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4, the prophet Elisha prophesied that she would have a son in her old age, and she did, miraculously. But what happened? Her son died. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18, God promised that they would have a son in their old ages. Not only would they have a son, but from this promised seed would come a great nation. And they did. They had Isaac. But what happened? God told Abraham to take this promised seed, his most prized treasure, his future, to the mountain and sacrifice him unto the Lord. Lazarus in John chapter 11, a man whom Jesus loved was sick. And the Lord sent message to his sisters telling them in verse 4, This sickness will not end in death, but on the contrary, it is for the glory and honor of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. What happened? Lazarus died. Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. He came to Jesus begging him to come and lay hands on his sick daughter so that she would be healed and lived. The Bible says that Jesus went with him. Jesus was with him. But what happened? A woman who had suffered many years with an issue of blood reached out and touched him, stopping Jesus in his tracks because healing virtue had gone out of him. And Jairus' daughter died. Jesus, in John chapter 19, he was the prophesied Messiah. God, come in the flesh, born of a virgin to deliver and set free his people. He was the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. But what happened? He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns crushed into his head, nailed to a cross, dying a criminal's death. John 12, 24, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain and yields a harvest. What should have been a joyous time of celebrating the promises of God, there was trial, there was struggle, there was unmet expectations, and for some, there was even death. It cost Seattle 17 lives to rebuild into this great city, And that's just what was reported. The greatest tragedy, which is human life, came when they set their minds to build upon this new opportunity that they had been given. Rebuilding is going to cost us something. The greatest miracle, the greatest progress, only came after there was death. In Seattle, it was death of human life. In the Bible, in some of the examples that we've spoke of, it was death of their hopes their dreams, and their promises. But looking back at Eve, she suffered great loss at the death of Abel. Can't imagine losing a child, especially at the hand of my other child. But it was through the lineage of Seth, meaning appointed, a substitute, that Jesus came. How fitting that Jesus Christ came from a man whose name means an appointed substitute brings a little more understanding to the scripture that he was slain from the foundation of the world, right? 
From the very beginning, Jesus was the appointed substitute for us. But Abel had to die in order for not only Seth, but for Jesus to be born. If Abel hadn't died, if Eve hadn't gone through that painful time, the true promise, the appointed substitute would not have came. The Shunammite woman lost her miracle child, but when she called the prophet, he came, he stretched himself over him, and life was breathed back into him. Because of this, just a few chapters later in 2 Kings chapter 8, we read of this same woman who had been instructed by the prophet to leave her home and to live in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And when she and her son returned, someone else had taken up residence in their home. I mean, she was obedient to the prophet. You know, her, the prophet had came, her son was risen, but then the prophet said, go to, go to Philistine and live for seven years. So, you know, she's obedient. But when she comes back, somebody's then moved in her house. I mean, I'd be like, um, sorry, but you're going to need to go. Anybody ever come in and, like, croach on your territory a little bit? And you're like, little thing, like, bubbles up and you're like, mm, I'm going to need you to go right now. <laughs> so I'm sure that that's, the Bible doesn't say that. But I can imagine that that's how the Shunammite woman felt. So she goes to the king. She's like, all right, king, I'm here to get my stuff back. I need you to move in here and get these people out of here. So she went to him and appealed to him. But God had gone before her. Before she could even come to the king, he was asking Gehazi, which was Elisha's servant, to tell him the great things that Elisha had done. And he, Gehazi was telling him the testimony of the dead being raised to life. He was telling him the testimony of the Shunammite woman's son being raised to life. So at the end of this account to the king, the Shunammite woman walks in. The king already knew exactly who she was. The, the king already knew exactly what God had done for her. And so the king restored all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields, not what she had when she left, but from the day that she had left the land because she was obedient. I'm sure it was painful for her to leave her farm and to leave her land and then to come back and find somebody else there. But God had went before her and restored that. In that process of losing something, when she came back, God had made it even greater. Abraham, Genesis 22, we know he took his promised seed, Isaac, to Mount Moriah. He bound him, laid him on top of the wood, and was in the motion of slaying him. He was... The hand was drawn back, and he was coming down, and God intervened and provided a ram in the thicket. Because Abraham did not withhold the promised blessing, the promise of blessing was upon him. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. They would take possession of the cities of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed because he was willing to let the promise die. We now know the Lord as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. When things seem impossible, when we've laid it all on the altar and we're getting ready to walk away with nothing, we know that God will provide a ram in the thicket. God is our provider. Lazarus was dead. He had been dead for four days. He was buried. They were mourning. Martha and Mary were so upset with Jesus that they ran to him and said, Lord, had you been here our brother would not have died. They were in essence saying, you're too late. It's over. They were hopeless. Have you ever been in that point where you're like, God, you know, if you had been here, 
this would not have happened. Where were you, God? Now you're here. It's too late. The, the nothing can be done. Well, that's when Jesus says, said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe that you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I was reading this uh, scripture last night, and it was some of the commentaries and things like that are kind of alluding to the fact that Jesus was a little bit angry. You know, they come running to him, like accusing him, like, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Like, you're, our brother is dead now because you didn't come. And so I can imagine Jesus was a little bit mad. Like, don't come at me accusing me like that. You know, so he was a little bit mad. So I can imagine some authority in his voice when he steps to that, th- that tomb and he says, get the stone out of my way. Roll it out of my way. Lazarus, come forth. These people don't believe. We got to give them something to believe. We got to show them that I am the resurrection and that I am the life. Not just when I come back, not just after I die on the cross, but I'm the resurrection and the life right now. I don't know what may have seemed to be dead in your life right now. I don't know what promises may have seemed to have died, but God wants you to know that he is the resurrection and he is the life right now. Amen. Amen. He's never late. God is never late. He does not work on our time frame, and he is never late. Sometimes it may seem delayed, but it's because he wants us to believe. He knows that there are some things that we have to go through to see resurrected so that we will believe. Jairus' daughter died. Not only did she die, but she died so that someone else could be healed. Have you ever felt like that? Ever prayed for something so desperately only to see someone else receive the miracle that you were believing God for? Not only did they receive their miracle, but have you felt like your miracle ended up dead? People from Jairus' home came to him and told him, leave Jesus alone. Your daughter is dead. Just leave him alone. There's no point in bothering him anymore. But Jesus, hearing the doomsdayers, looked to Jairus and told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus hears the doomsdayers that are speaking in your ear right now. Jesus hears it, and he's telling you, don't be afraid. Just believe. Because he is in control. And he went, so Jesus went with him. He went on with him to his home. He told all of the mourners to leave. He said, okay, you guys are going to have to go. Enough of this boohooing and crying. I need you to go away, you know, because you're stressing me out. Does it stress anybody else out when people are just continually, like, crying and crying and crying, and you're like, pull it together, you know? (laughs) I really am compassionate and like to show mercy, but sometimes it does get on my nerves. Anyway. (laughs) So Jesus tells, you know, he says, tells all the mourners to leave. And he goes in and he takes the little girl by the hand and he says, little girl, get up. And immediately she stood up and began walking around. God wants someone here to know that your promise may appear to be dead, but it's just asleep. God is enough for you. He's not left you. He's still with you. He may have had to stop and take care of something on the way, but he's still with you. 
He's going to go with you all the way. He's not going to just say, oh, I have to stop and take care of this, and I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to need you to just to go ahead and go. No. He said, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take care of this, but God, I'm going to keep going with you because I'm enough. I'm enough for them, and I'm enough for them, and I'm enough for them. At every single moment, no matter what you need, God's enough. No matter what, There's so many needs in this room right now, and I want you to know God is enough for every single one of them. So many times we get locked in this mindset, and I think it's our culture and it's just our world, that when the bank is run dry, oh, well, that's it. We don't have enough money for this. God's bank never runs dry never runs dry. He's always enough. The Bible tells us he's more than enough. Think about that. He's more than enough than every need that we have in this entire room, in this entire world. That's how great and how big our God is. Amen. Amen. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Look to the doomsdayers, look to the mourners and say, I'm going to need y'all to move on. I'm going to need y'all to move on. We're done crying over this. God's enough. God's enough. The final point, Jesus was crucified. He suffered the cruelest of deaths, was buried in a borrowed tomb with a stone, and armed guards were placed in front of it. I'm not real sure why they felt they needed to put armed guards at the tomb of a dead man. I mean, come on now. But on that third day, because I think that they knew that he rose from the grave and now proclaims in Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and of death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. That's that process. That's that process that we're all in right now. Verse 54 says, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? Verse 57 says, but thanks be to God. He giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. There's that steadfast word again. Be unmovable, always abounding in the work. There's that work again of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. Jesus' death was not in vain. Lazarus' death was not in vain. The Shunammite's son was not in vain. None of these situations, your situation is not in vain. James chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, it says, Be assured that the testing of your faith through experience, you've got to experience some things, it produces endurance. It's leading to spiritual maturity and inner peace. That situation that you're going through right now, it may seem so heavy and so overwhelming. The end result is peace. Verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result. Let it do a thorough work so that you may be perfect and completely developed, lacking in nothing. 
So I was driving home the other day, and I was thinking about what to teach this morning. My mind was all over the place. I could not focus. I was just like, all right, Lord, I'm going to need, I had even asked my mom, mom, I asked Haleo, I was like, y'all pray that the Lord just tells me what to say today, because I didn't know. So I taught this lesson a couple of years ago at my aunt and uncle's church, um, and it just kept coming to my mind. It kept just coming, that death and the rebuilding, death, it just kept coming back to my mind. But I just wasn't sure. If you've ever taught, you know, if you've ever spoken at all, you know that that happens. You're like, ah, maybe, maybe not, you know, back and forth. So I was driving through the mountains of West Virginia, and I looked out the window to see beautiful color that covered the horizon. It's beautiful through West Virginia right now. And the quote came to my mind, that autumn is God's way of showing us how beautiful change can be. We are in a season of change. Many of us in our personal lives, in our families, in our careers, in our ministries, our church is in a season of change. One that we're celebrating today. It's, it's, it's a good thing. Our world Our world is in a season of many changes, right? It seems that every day, every morning when you wake up, there's something different that you got to process and readjust your mind to. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big fan of change. I like routine, especially if I'm comfortable. Now, I like to change things if I'm not comfortable, but if I'm comfortable, I'm okay to leave it that way. In some ways, I think sometimes change can almost feel like a death. Feel feel like somebody has died or something has died. So this morning, you may be feeling buried under all of the change. Your plans, your dreams, just maybe the way you expected something to happen has not only been shot down, but it's been buried deep. It's deep. You know, at one time, the change may have seemed and appeared as beautiful as the changing leaves through West Virginia. But now, all you've got is dry, brown, ugly, and seemingly dead leaves. John 12, 24, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Just one grain, never more. But if it dies... It produces much grain and yields a harvest. I know change hurts sometimes. It may not seem fair. I know it can be worrisome, but God has not forgotten you. You're exactly where God wants you to be, and we are exactly where God wants us to be. Philippians 1.6 says, He that has begun a good work in you will complete it. God's still working on you through all of the things, all of the changes, all of the things that may seem to have died. God is still working, and he's going to complete it. Living hope is exactly where God wants living hope to be. There have been some things planted in this community, in this church, in your lives, in your families, and it's this season that is going to produce the greatest harvest, the greatest revival that we've ever seen. Because if it dies, it produces much, and it yields a harvest. That's a promise of the word of God. We've prayed for revival. We've prayed for new converts, backsliders, and lost souls. But it's going to cost us some things to see those prayers answered. 
Seattle lost 17 lives, but is now consistently ranked among the top 10 best places to live in the United States. A city that was destroyed by a fire, a city that had sewage backed up into their main port, a city that had over a million rodents, is now in the top 10 places to live in the United States. Eve lost her son, but gave birth to the lineage of redemption. The Shunammite woman lost her son and her farm only to see the dead raised and seven years of harvest returned to her. Abraham was prepared to lose his promised son, but God provided the ram in the thicket. Mary and Martha lost their brother, but were eyewitnesses to him being resurrected. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine the belief and the faith that would come from that? Jairus lost his daughter, but saw her raised to life and saw a miraculous healing on the way. He got two for one. Jesus lost his life, but three days later, he rose from the grave, and he's preparing for us a place to be with him for eternity. I don't know exactly what it will cost each of us. I don't know. It probably won't be the same for, each, for any one of us. It's going to cost us each different things. But the reward, the return, the rebuilding, the revival will be so much greater. Romans 8, 17 through 18, it says, If we are his children, then we are his heirs also. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are sharing in his spiritual blessing and inheritance. If indeed we share in his suffering, so that we may also share in his glory. Verse 18 says, For I consider, from the standpoint of faith, that the sufferings of this present life They're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed in us and, I'm sorry, to us and in us. The glory, we're not just going to see it, but it's going to be in us. We're going to see glory in our own lives, in our own personal lives, and we're going to see it. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, this passing trouble. Everyone say that with me. This passing trouble. It's not here to stay. This trouble that we're experiencing right now, it's passing. It's but for a moment. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God has you. God's working all things for the good to them that love him and who are called according to his purpose. So I ask you this morning as in closing, if you would stand. Again, I, said, I told you guys this is going to be a little bit different than my previous lessons that I've taught, but I felt like the, it just, it fit with where we are right now. So I want to ask you this morning, if we could all bow our heads and close our eyes before we enter into worship today, what's God asking of you today? What promise has God given you that he's saying, just bring it to the altar. Give it to me. Even if it seems to die, I've got it. I have a plan. What is he asking you to let die? What is he asking you to let go of in order for something greater to be built in your life? What is he asking you to put back on his potter's wheel to be broken again to be remade in his hands, his way, for his purpose. God, I thank you 
for all that you've done, God. Thank you for your work. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait.